verse beginning at verse 7, and I'll read through verse 12. James 5, 7. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it, until he receive the early and latter rain. Be ye also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. Take, my brethren, the prophets, who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering affliction and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job, and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. But above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea, and your nay, nay, lest he fall into condemnation. You may be seated. <clears throat> The practice of patience. If you do a relatively quick scan of the text here this morning, you'll notice the word patience or a form of the word comes up numerous times, I think five times. And there are at least uh, four other times that you have a word that is similar, um, implies some of the same meaning. You have the word uh, waiting when it describes the farmer in verse 7. And you have the word uh, in verse 11, uh, words like endure. That is actually a different Greek word in verse 11. Actually, James switches in verse 11 and uses a different Greek word, which I'll explain earlier uh, in a few moments. In verse 11, the word endure. And the word patience there in verse 11 is a different Greek word than the previous uh, transliterations or, me, or trans, yeah, the, the words that were, the Greek words that were used previously. And the, you also have the word pitiful to describe the Lord and tender mercies has some of the very same meanings and some of the same descriptions and um, yeah, it's pretty hard to read this passage without realizing that we are called to, uh, to patience as believers, as Christians. I think one of our responsibilities and the way we um, express our faith and belief in Christ is through endurance and patience. <clears throat> the Greek word in the uh, first uh, five instances... Here is the word macrothuma. And um, just to have us do a little bit of word study here, in the English language, we use the word, the prefix macro, M-A-C-R-O. And it's a direct uh, carryover from the Greek um, language or Latin. The word macro means a lot of, as compared to the prefix micro. And the word micro, on the other hand, means a small amount or small in nature. Macro, on the other hand, means the opposite of that, which is a large amount or, or lots of it in, in general. 
had the word thumia um, is the word that we get our English word thermal from that same Greek word. And the word thermal has the idea of heating or temperature, things in relation to that. And so, yeah, to transliterate that word is often used long-suffering. The same Greek word is translated long-suffering in the New Testament. And that means that you have a lot of patience. You have a lot of, you are willing to suffer lots of suffering. Long in temper or temperature. You are not quickly hot under the collar as um, we have these cliches or these one-liners that we use to describe people that have micro thumia or who have almost no ability to suffer or very small amounts of patience. <clears throat> and I think it is very, very enlightening, very interesting <clears throat> to see how this word is used in different places in the New Testament. And I want to cover that maybe sort of throughout the um, sermon, but especially here at the beginning, I want to talk just a bit about patience and, and how that uh, applies to our lives in general. It is interesting that in the New Testament, the word macrothumia or long-suffering is generally used in relation to being patient with people as compared to being patient with things. Now, it is easy for us when we think about the word patience to be especially tuned into being patient with things such as waiting in long lines or getting in ourselves into some sort of traffic jam or some unexpected delay. Uh, those are things that we deal with all the time. And it includes that. But in more specificity, the word macrothumia is used to describe how we need to be long-suffering and long in our ability to be slow to become angry is another way to say that. Slow to retaliate. Slow to impugn motives on people around us. Especially patient with people as compared to being patient with things or circumstances. Being long-suffering carries the idea of being taken for granted or inconvenienced by people repeatedly, over and over again, and yet refrain from becoming upset because of it. Macrothumia means waiting a long time before or without giving way to anger. It implies victory over resentment. And again, resentment is usually anger that's carried for a while. It's an expression of anger that's unresolved. Microthumia. Macrothumia is patient with those who wrong us, who nag us, criticize us, or irritate us in some way. And neither, neither does long-suffering appear or disappear when it is frustrated or angered. Patience. 
In the English dictionary, patience is described as the ability to wait, to continue doing something despite difficulties, or to suffer without complaining or becoming annoyed. Now, when you stop and think about it, one of the primary times that patience is actually necessary is in the face of relational conflict. I've been there, and you have too, I'm sure. Patient in the face of conflict. <clears throat> Now, when the word patience is used in the Bible, and specifically here in the book of James, I don't see in any way that the word patience is used to, as a as a passive way of accepting whatever comes our way. I think it implies that we have a realistic view of what's happening. It does not mean that we uh, dismiss it or that in some way we shrug it off as, oh, it's nothing. It carries the idea of being knowledgeable about what is happening to us and around us while keeping our spirit in check, while keeping our attitude under the control of the Holy Spirit. And I remind you that one of the fruit of the Holy Spirit is long-suffering, and the word temperance is also used in that list. It has the same, same kind of idea. And that comes as a result of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. It is not something that comes from, with, from within ourselves. Our human nature is not inclined to this. It reminds me of the story I read this week who, of a person who was in a traffic jam. And probably in our culture, I, I, I don't know if this is the most common, but I was doing some driving this week, and I, I thought of it different times, especially in relation to studying for this sermon, how easy it is to become impatient with people when we're driving. Anyway, the story was that uh, they were in a traffic jam, and it wasn't long until the person behind was honking the horn and just wouldn't quit. So the person gets out of the car, and he goes back, and he says, Sir, how about we trade places? And you go up in my car, and I'll stay in your car and honk your horn while you get me out of the situation that I'm in. And that's, that's just, yeah. It's the nature of our feeling of impatience with people when things are not going exactly as we expect. Patience, on the other hand, is realistic. It is not... It is not pretending as if it is nothing, but it's, it's outlasting or enduring or making the best of or using the this, this situation and the incident to come to a better spot. Patience does not mean that we sit around in a moment where nothing is happening and we just want to get to a place where things are fun again. That's not necessarily what the word patient means. It simply means that we hold out. We don't necessarily seek to escape. We don't retaliate. We don't freak out. Patience recognizes that good is happening even while the circumstances and the situation we're in is less than desirable. That something good is happening even while we're waiting. 
The word macrothumia denotes a fixation of direction and purpose. And that ties in with the theme of the book of James, as I see. I've tried to remind you as we've gone through this, this topic, or this subject, this series of sermons, that the book of James is really a call for a fixation of purpose, not, not a, a duplicity of focus, where we're looking, trying to look at two things, or focusing on two things. Dualism is the word that we've used different times, where there are two motivations or two purposes going into our lives. And it, the, James chapter 1 makes it very clear that that's not even really a possibility. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways, the word tells us. And so macrothumia has the idea of being focused, focused in purpose, and fo focused in direction, no matter what the situation is around us. The call here in this text is for us to be patient. An uncomfortable call for all of us. So, what is the purpose that God has entrusted to us? What is this call? and What is this direction? What is this fixation of direction that we should be focused on as believers? Well, the teaching of James indicates that this purpose and this call is to be part of our calling, part of, is, is for us to be part of the agenda for, that God has for the world, to be part of his kingdom. As it says in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How does that look in our lives, especially when we're in a difficult situation with people or circumstances, either one? How can we promote God's agenda or his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven during that specific moment or that specific time. To be part of the message of grace that God has intended for everybody who comes in contact with us. And that means that I have a certain way of speaking, a certain reason for speaking. I have a reason for speaking in a certain way using a certain tone of voice or a certain choice of words. It means that I have a reason for conducting relationships in a certain way. It means that I have a reason for spending money in a certain way. I have a reason to use time and energy in a certain way. I have a reason for thinking certain things and for desiring certain things and doing certain things. And James points that out so vividly. And that's one of the reasons why the book of James is such a compelling book for us. And why it is so practical and why it is so street level in its message to us. Is because it involves these specific things. And how we are to live our lives with that model. And in that specific way. This fixation of purpose and direction. Colors and permeates every practical aspect of our life. <clears throat> now James has already spoken to this in chapter 1 verse 5. I'm sorry, verse 3, where he's talking about trials or being patient in relation to trials. This would be more situations and circumstances. Being patient. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. And he goes on, and let patience, let macrothumia have her perfect work. And I think it is very interesting to note that this is in the feminine tense. 
I think it implies that, well, at least in my way of thinking, I think that maybe this thing of patience is especially a challenge for us men. And when you think of people who are engaged in road rage, or you have this visual of somebody that's hot under the collar, as we say, isn't it usually um, the picture is a man? We are the ones that are especially to be leaders in this idea of patience and macrothumia, long-suffering. And so it means that we endure and that we're steadfast is another word that's used. Many of the other translations use the word steadfast to describe this idea of patience. It's key to every other sort of blessing that God intends to bring to our lives. Our ability to look and to evaluate situations and circumstances in relation to people, the way we process that is especially important for us to receive any other blessing that comes to us from God. As it says here in James chapter 1, let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, that ye may become mature, that ye may become complete, wanting nothing. All of the other blessings that God intends to bring into our lives flow through this channel of steadfastness or patience. And that's especially true. Are you ready for this? That's especially true when life comes to me in uncomfortable forms. When life is coming to me in uncomfortable ways. And I remind you that God is much more interested, much more interested in our holiness than he is in our comfort. And it's a shame. It's sad that too often we focus on our comfort and not enough on our holiness. But God is interested in causing us to become mature and complete. That has the idea of holiness. He is much more interested in our holiness than in our comfort. The principle of trials and testing is that God will take you where you could not have gone on your own in order to produce something that you could not have produced on your own. And that's what God brings us to situations and to people is because he wants to produce something in our lives that we could not have achieved on our own. And it is so true that life is full of, full of situations that test our patience. And I'm sure even as you're thinking this week, there's things that have happened in the last couple of days, perhaps even in the last couple of hours that have tested your patience. That's true that for the most part, we are individuals. And as a culture, maybe and especially as our American Western culture, we're not very good at patience. We're not very good at waiting. We're not very good at using situations and seeing things as a, as a means for growth in our lives. Because we're used to having things done fast or just a little faster. And at least at the minimum, according to our time frame, and the way we think it should be, whether it's waiting in a doctor's office or waiting for a traffic light to change or waiting in line to be checked out at a grocery store or waiting for a promotion at your job or waiting to hear the test results from your, the lab work that the hospital is doing or waiting for an apology from somebody that has hurt us or we're waiting for God to answer our problem, the situation that we're calling out, crying out to him for. And as fallen created beings we live in a fallen world 
and waiting is a collective, common experience. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 is the passage where it talks and reminds us that there is a time for everything. There's a time for all of the different things that come into our lives. All of the different seasons. There's a time. Life on earth is measured in terms of seasons and times. And we read those words and think about uh, all the seasons and times in our lives. The experiences that life brings us. And then we have to consider that among all of those reasons and among, uh, seasons and among all of those times of life that Ecclesiastes talks about, there's periods, there's gaps of waiting. Gaps of um, where patience is needed. Times where long-suffering is needed. And that's where the rubber meets the road. Seasons and times of waiting. Where we are on the road, somewhere on the road between God's providence and our human expectations of what a certain situation is or seems to be. And that often causes great disappointment on our part and frustration and conflict. And I would just say anger on our part. And part of the reason is because it exposes. It exposes the reality that we are not in control. And there's few things that are as unsettling to our human nature as that particular aspect. We like to be in charge and in control. We like to manipulate people and situations. We don't like when things are out of our control. It's one of the most unsettling places that we can find ourselves. And there's, it's just so true. There are so many of the most important things in life things that really matter to us are actually very much out of our control. And this is the context of today's passage. If you scan back over the previous verses in the previous chapter of James chapter 4 and 5, and you look at the greater context of this, this text here, it's building and continuing on the teaching that we are to be humble, that we are to be full of grace, that we are to be um, free from adultery to the world and adulteresses to things that come from ourselves and things that um, come from um, the world and in, in, in nature in, in chapter 4. And he goes on to say that God gives grace in direct proportion to our willing to submit to others. Direct proportion of grace to our willingness to submit to him and along with that James continues as we have seen so many times and he's so practical and he talks about especially our speaking and you know I thought of it this week especially the one time as I, as I was driving I found myself talking out loud which is something I do to myself and I started to to speak about or vent my impatience. And you can see that in chapter 4. Speak not evil, he says, one of another brethren. 
He that speaketh evil of his brother and judges his brother actually causes judgment to come to himself or to herself. And it goes on there and uses that theme different times. And we need to be careful. We need to be long-suffering and understanding the reality of God's control in our lives when we make plans for our lives. And how we respond to the things that God gives us. Riches is the word that's used. In chapter 5, verses 1, the beginning of that, that, that passage there, in verse 3, Your gold and silver is cankered. The rust of them shall be a witness against you. And ye shall eat your flesh as it were fire. Ye have heaped treasure together for the last days. Again, the picture of our desire to control the things and circumstances and people around us. <clears throat> now the mood changes in our text for today. As James moves, I talked about this a bit in our last um, sermon. He changes the wording. Notice in verses chapter 4, especially the beginning of chapter 5, he uses the pronoun ye. And most of the other places in the past or in the book of James, he uses the word us. He includes himself as he's speaking. And I don't know exactly what's implied by that, but now he comes back in verse 7, the verse that we begin our text here today, and he says, be patient, therefore, brethren. And I think I love the identification that James puts into his words. And he identifies, he places himself in the challenge. No longer is he speaking out, he's speaking inwardly. And I appreciate that. And I, I think that James is actually demonstrating to the readers, us included, about our common desire and our common need for, for patience. There's at least, let me just back up here a little bit. <clears throat> In James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, I've already uh, gone back there, so I won't take the time to flip back there necessarily, other than to just say that James's counsel at the beginning of this letter was that we were to count it all joy, brethren, when ye fall into various or different trials. We are to count it all joy. And that we talked about that at a different time and a different place. But steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect in our lives that we can be mature and complete and lacking nothing. Now, at the end of this letter, James is again reminding them, coming back and circling back to this idea of being patient. And what that means in the context of the warning of God's judgment is interesting to me. There's at least three references to the coming of the Lord in this passage, in this text. And I think it is so enlightening to think about or to how James is wanting to condition us, wanting us to be conditioned to thinking about life in terms of eternity. It's not just about here and now, folks. Our perspective is not just about here and now, and we need to train ourselves. We need to condition our minds to be thinking along those lines. And James does that. 
here in this passage by talking about the coming of the Lord in verse 7. And the coming of the Lord in verse 8. And in verse... Uh, uh, is that verse... Uh, right now I lost my place. In verse... Uh, Another place it mentions here about the judge in verse 9. The judge standing at the door. The imminent time where Jesus Christ himself, the Lord, is going to put things back into corrected order. The coming of the Lord is a reminder to us, should be a reminder to us, that patience and waiting is not an obstacle to God's plan. It is peace and parcel of the plan. Patience and waiting is not useless. While we're waiting, something amazing is going on. While we're waiting, God is actually using those times to bring about correction in our own lives at the moment. But ultimately, God is using patience and our waiting for his return to be a reminder and a, and a teaching point for us that God is in control, not us. He is in charge, not us. He is sovereign, not us. You see, if there is no bigger picture, if there is no eternity, then patience makes no sense. Being patient and long-suffering makes no sense unless you have eternity in view. If all we have is the here and now, then it makes sense for me to get all that I can get my hands on. It makes sense for me to impose myself and to force myself into people's schedules and wishes. If all that I have is here and now, that makes sense. It makes sense for me to be impatient. If all I have is here and now. But conversely, since here and now is only a small piece of the greater picture, then it makes no sense for me to be impatient. Because God is doing something amazing while we're waiting. And I want, to, want us to see that as we go through the rest of the sermon. Delayed gratification only makes sense when I realized that God is actually controlling everything that is happening to me and around me, and that ultimately that will come to a climax when Jesus Christ comes back and corrects things into their corrected and created intention. I want to turn now and just look at the four illustrations as I see it in the text here. And James, in typical form, uses some practical illustrations to, to demonstrate patience to us, to teach us about patience. The first one is the farmer. Now, if you are impatient, if you are an impatient person, you probably shouldn't be a farmer. Because farmers understand this idea of delayed gratification, perhaps as well as any business. And certainly agriculture in general was common in that day and still is to this time. But as a farmer, 
a farmer understands that no crop appears overnight. There is always a season between the investment and the reaping or the payback. The reward always comes in a different season. No, no crop appears overnight except for weeds. And no farmer has control over the weather. None. There's no amount of control that a farmer can in any way manipulate the weather. There is no rain clouds. There is no magic. There is not, nothing that a farmer can, can cook up some sort of dust or any kind of control over the weather in any way. However, too much rain causes the crop to rot. And not enough of rain causes the crop to burn up. An early frost or a late frost can kill the crop. And Jewish farmers understood that just as much as American Pennsylvania farmers understand some of those same concepts. He talks about the early and latter rains. He's talking about the weather pattern. He's talking about the dependence of farmers on things that are out of their control. The early spring rains, our February and March, were sent or typically came into Palestine to soften up the ground. And it was in those times, at the correct window, they were to get seed in. And then it was the latter rains which finished the crop and caused it to, to come to maturity and harvest. The farmer gets that. The farmer realizes that trans transformation is taking place while he's waiting. That transformation happens in many ways by factors that are completely out of his control. The farmer had to wait weeks and in a completely different season receive his reward. The farmer gets that. Do we? Do we understand that? <clears throat> There are seasons to our spiritual life just like there are seasons to the soil and to agriculture in general. Sometimes our hearts become hard and God has to plow. God has to break up the hardened ground in our lives through circumstances and through people that we wouldn't necessarily pick. And then God sends the sunshine and the rains of his grace to water and nurture the seeds that have been planted and to bring that harvest to a ripe and bountiful fruition. <clears throat> Again, James brings the picture of the second coming of Christ into these verses. And verses 7, 8, and 9. He says that this is to warn us that a critical judgmental attitude toward one another cuts into the power of our ability to be patient and extend grace to other people. It cuts into the provision of the Holy Spirit. One of the tenets, one of the characteristics of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. And it is a demonstration that the Holy Spirit does not have all the areas in our lives that God actually intended or wants the Holy Spirit to have in our lives. <clears throat> Be ye also patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. 
Although many hours of the farmer's labor are needed, and a farmer, along with that, also puts in lots of effort. A farmer cannot be a passive, lazy person. It is, it is uh, diametrically uh, opposed to what, farmer, uh, what agriculture uh, needs. And there's plenty of weeks where a 40-hour week has, yeah, a farmer can work a 40-hour week by Tuesday night or something. But it implies that there is vision or knowing when the window is open and when you should be working, when you should be pushing, when you should be planting the seeds. Again, this idea and of, of knowledge and connection to reality, not some passive giving up or shrugging of the shoulders. <clears throat> and that's even more true in a spiritual sense. When it comes down to our part and us doing what is ours to do, us doing what God wants us to do in producing spiritual fruit, it's not all up to God. There are some aspects where God wants us to do what we can do. I'm thinking of John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that beareth much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. <clears throat> so like farmers, we're to live and work patiently and wait patiently. Looking forward to the future spiritual harvest that we know is coming for the earth. Patience is not so much about waiting for grace as it is realizing that you are getting grace and realizing where grace comes from. The second illustration is the prophets. In verse 10, James shares with us a second example. And that example has to do with the power of God by exercising patient restraint. Now the prophets... The prophets, all throughout the Old Testament, we read of faithful men and faithful people who brought reality to the people, who brought the truth, especially to the people of, of Israel. The prophets well illustrated the power of God-given restraint in the face of opposition, oppression, trials, struggles, pain, and conflict. The prophets many times were not well-liked or well-favored or popular in their time. And biblical history tells us that the prophets of God were instrumental in bringing influence or bringing correction, bringing reminder to the people that they ministered to. <clears throat> the prophets are forerunners in many ways of our Jesus who also came into the world and was rejected of man. Isaiah 53 tells us he was slain like a lamb and the same is true for us. Our ability to reflect and to use restraint and to be patient 
is an illustration of Jesus Christ to the people around us. It should be and can be. When we obediently follow the will of God, there is suffering and a certain amount of persecution that comes with that. There may be and will be times where we're not well liked or we're not the message that we're the exercise of patience in our lives is not going to be particularly popular or well received. Many of the prophets endured great persecution and suffering. Hebrews 11. And not only at the hands of those who rejected God, but sometimes at the hands of, of people who profess to love God. And if we're following Jesus, the same thing could and might happen to us as well. The prophets knew the presence and the power of God. And they knew it especially well in times of persecution and, and suffering. Tough times. It tells me that regardless of our circumstances, we can patiently trust God for who he is because there's coming a time where verse 11 or verse 9 tells us that the judge is coming and he's going to stand at the door. It's not our responsibility to be that, to pretend to be or try to be that. He stands at the door. The judge stands at the door. And it's not talking about us in that verse. <clears throat> the third example is Job. James shares with us regarding a man who suffered probably more intensely and more dramatically than any of us sitting here have ever faced suffering or suffering that none of us have ever faced. Think about this, James is saying. We cannot patiently persevere unless there is struggle. We learn patience through the things that we suffer. Job, Job, it, it says, ye have, uh, verse, let me just back up, verse 11, we count them blessed or happy that endure. People that do well in suffering, and you can think of one or two of those people probably right now. You can think of people mentors in your life who have done well under extreme pressure and suffering in their life. We count them blessed who have endured or who have been patient, who have suffered long. And you've heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end or the purpose of the Lord. We'll get to that in a minute. But throughout the Old Testament and particularly the book of Job, we can see that there are there is nothing like victory without battle. There is no high mountain peaks without also having some very deep valleys. In fact, just looking at it from a topo topographical perspective, when you're at the peak, there's usually two valleys. The peak, the mountaintops don't come without the valleys. There's no victory without battles. And in this context, James points us to Job. And it's a fascinating study. And I thought of it this summer or earlier this spring as I read the book of Job. It's a long, tedious book. It's hard reading. It's chapters filled with God and Satan and people and pain and loss and accusations and anger and sorrow and confusion and lament. And Job talks about all the things that he's lost and his wealth and his health and his family and even his wife who encouraged them to commit suicide and to 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 give up on God. And then Job debates with his three friends who actually weren't all that friendly. 
And finally, at the end of the book, we get to the place where Job is delivered. And God honors Job's faith. And he shows up at the end of the book and reminds Job of his incredible power. And that's a real climax for the book of Job. If you have the chance, sometime just focus at chapter 38 to the end. It's amazing, amazing story. Job is reminded that he had no idea what all was going on. He had no concept, at least early on, of all that God was working on his behalf. And we get to chapter 42, and I'm just going to take the time to turn to that. At the very end of, of, of the book of Job, actually I'm not going to turn to that, but Job just gets to the, a place where he says, look, I have, I have received all this at your hand, and I'm so undeserving of your great power at work in our lives. Job's testimony is that through the trial, God has transformed him He's become a changed man because of the trial. And that is the purpose. And I, I think it's easy for me to read the book of Job and I see, well, God returned everything. All of his, all of his possessions and his, his children, his health and wealth, it was all returned. But I think the broader point of the book of James, of the book of Job, is that God changed and perfected Job. And Job came through that experience that he didn't ask for, that he didn't bargain for, that he hadn't really done anything to deserve. It was not given to him as a punishment. It was given to him as a form of growth and maturity in his life. And Job passed the test and he came out a new man. And I'm impressed as I think of that about God's patience with Job. Job, Job, was not a particularly good sufferer at various points in the book of Job. He's frustrated and he's angry. He's mad at God. He's mad at his friends. But God's patience with Job says a whole lot more about God than it talks than it does about Job. And that's the fourth point as I see it. Here in verse 9. <clears throat> I'm sorry. Verse... Um, Verse 11, ye have heard of the patience of Job. Ye have seen the end or the purpose, the limit of the Lord. Ye have seen the Lord. The fourth example here of patience is the Lord himself. God's patience with Job and God's patience with me. God's patience with me says a whole lot more about him than it does about me. Much more. In fact, his patience with me says almost nothing about me. I've been oppressed as I just studied here and accumulated a few scriptures. And for the lack of time or the sake of, yeah, I'm just going to have to go through this pretty quick. I don't have slides for this. But I'm just going to read some passages from the Old and New Testament that talk about God's patience. And these are just portions and sections and just part of, of the bigger list. Exodus 34, verse 6, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth. Numbers 14, 18, The Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression. Nehemiah 9, 17, Thou art a God ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. Psalm 86, 15, But thou, O Lord, art a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and plenteous in mercy and truth. 
Psalm 103, verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, long-suffering, macrothumia, and plenteous in mercy. Romans chapter 2, verse 4, and despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance, macrothumia, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance, Paul says. Verse, verse nine, chapter 9, verse 22, What if God, willing to show his wrath, we heard about that in the devotions this morning, and to make his power known, endured, endured with much long-suffering, the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known, verse 23, the riches of his grace on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory. Even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. There's a lot that could be said about those verses. First Timothy chapter 1 verse 16, How be it for this cause I obtain mercy, Paul speaking, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all his longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him. Think about your long-suffering and your patience being an example for people that are coming after you. People that are watching your life. When you go to pieces, when you have a meltdown for lack of patience, you're disrupting that possibility for people to see God at work in your life. And First Peter, Second Peter chapter 3, verses 9 and 15 the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 15, an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is patience, is salvation, I'm sorry. The long-suffering of God is patience. I'm going to say that correctly the third time. The long-suffering of God is salvation. Over and over again in both the Old and New Testament. And I was especially struck with the thought that it seems almost as if God used a greater expression of, of patience and long-suffering in the Old Testament. The Old Testament actually describes God as more patient, more long-suffering. Or equally so. As far as I can tell, God is never in any place in the Bible described as being patient with circumstances. I don't see one place. I couldn't find one place in the Bible where God is patient with circumstances. But over and over again, he's patient with people. And that's where we're challenged. That's where I'm challenged. By far, the greatest challenge for me is to be patient with people. Why? Because I think God knows everything. God knows everything. He's sovereign. God is never said to be patient about things or circumstances. But he's patient with people. He's long-suffering to us for not willing that any should perish. I was going to take the time to just look at James chapter 5 verse 12. And again circling back to patience in speech. We saw it, see it in verse 9. Where we're not to grudge one another. We're not to harbor resentment lest ye be condemned. In verse... Um, the, the word grudge there has the idea of grumbling or speaking. And verse 12, he brings that same idea in where he's talking about impatience. And verbal impatience needs to use, we need to strengthen the language. We need to use stronger terms. 
We're not willing to allow people over a period of time to see the truth. And so we dive in with both feet. We stomp on that situation by using stronger words than necessary to get our point across. I'm guilty. I'm guilty. It's easy to place ourselves on the level of God in situations and in particularly verbally. We use stronger than necessary terms to convince people. It's easy to say things that you do not even mean. Or to try to make bargains with God. Or to, com- to convince people that you are the one who has the knowledge. You are the one that has the control. It's easy to place ourselves on a level that was only meant for God in terms of control. James reminds us and speaks of, this, of, of Job who, who struggled with this very thing. Cursed the day that he was born. He never cursed God, though. He never bargained with God in that way. But at the end of the book, throughout the process, or at the end of the process, I should say, he said, naked came I from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I just recently studied just a little bit, of, took a little bit of a glance, glance at the explorers, the early American explorers. And it's so interesting to look at the story of Lewis and Clark, who had the idea of traveling to the Pacific coast. And they faced incredible hardships along the way. And it's interesting that when they crossed the Missouri River, which is barely the Midwest, when they crossed the Missouri River, they thought that it was going to be all downhill from there to the Pacific Ocean. And they got to a place where it was wide and flat. And they thought, look, it's going to be This is going to be smooth sailing. But then they got to the Rockies. And they had some of the most difficult and stress hiking and climbing and difficult experience of their entire journey. But they finally reached the ocean. They realized that the Rockies had actually given them confidence. Conquering the Rockies had actually given them what they need to finish the journey. And that's so true for us. God sovereignly and compassionately gives us what we need. He gives us the tests and trials of our lives to produce patience and endurance so that we can be faithful unto the coming of Jesus Christ. Here it says in verse 7. Several things as I close. Our instant gratification culture actually works against us in producing spiritual patience. Patience often develops over time and through trials. Patience requires perspective, an eternal perspective, a perspective that's much bigger than here and now. And we need to place our hope in Christ. We must recognize that cruelty, conflict, and catastrophe provide opportunities for spiritual growth. And it's important for us not to waste those opportunities. Just like the farmer, we're to patiently plow and plant and water and do what we can while we wait for God to bring the harvest. And just like the prophets, we are to patiently endure opposition 
when we share and live out the Word of God. Like Job, we are to patiently allow God to do his deeper work in our lives for his greater purpose. And like the Lord Jesus, we're to be patient with other people and reflect that grace and glory to people around us. And ultimately, we are to run to our patient Lord because he is so interested in receiving us. Many times, God, our Lord Jesus Christ, is much more willing to receive us than we are to run to him. And in the rough times in our lives, we sometimes especially are more eager to lean on our understanding rather than his. And my prayer is that as individuals and collectively as a group of people, believers that are gathered here this morning, and for our church together, that we would come to know the power of the patience of God. That we would be given restraint in the midst of struggle and difficulty that we face. And we know ultimately that Jesus is with us and that he's going to return. It says much more about him than it does about us. It says much more about him than it does about us. Let's keep that in mind. If you're able to kneel, I invite you to do so for prayer.